Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Uh, In this episode, I wanted to dive a little bit more deeply uh, into the different facets of autism. So in the last two uh, podcasts, the beginning of the series, I would say the first two uh, podcasts in this particular series, I talk about um, sort of like an overview of, of autism, so an introduction to autism, and then the one after that, I talk Uh, about the DSM-5 criteria. So what I call a breaking down of the DSM-5 criteria, uh, really talking about what the diagnostic criteria are for autism um, as a diagnosis. So what would a clinician be looking at when they're determining a diagnosis? And in those two episodes, there were uh, many facets and different aspects Uh, that occur commonly with individuals who have autism that we talked about. And so um, what I wanted to do was really pull some of those out and refine them a little bit more for you and explain them. And so I would say that when we're looking at uh, the different facets of autism, as I call it, you're going to see um, oftentimes challenges in four particular areas that I'm going to highlight over the next four episodes. So there's social communication, there's sensory sensitivities, executive function, and anxiety. And um, we're going to delve deeply into those. And not only will I talk about each one of them, but I'll also give you some strategies that can be really helpful. So whether these strategies can be used for you personally, whether they're for a student or for a client, um, these can all be, uh, can be really helpful if, you know, if there is a, um, a challenge in one of these areas. Uh, so um, let's get into it. I really wanted to talk today about social communication. And when we talk about social communication, right, I, I would say it's all of the things that help us have um, communication with other people and, of course, be in relationship. It also is how we interpret the world that's around us, right? How do we receive information? And as we talk through the next several episodes, you'll see how some of these really overlap a lot and sometimes it's kind of hard to decide where to place information. But as you listen to all of these uh, holistically, you'll see how they kind of all fit together. But when we look at social communication, it's not just about how we talk to each other, but it's also how um, and communicate with each other. But it's also about how we receive information, 
how we process that information, um, and what do we notice uh, in the environment around us, and then how do we sort of you know give that information back? How do we express ourselves uh, in communication socially so that others can um, understand us? And then we have this uh, what we would say reciprocity happening, right? Like this back and forth dialogue with people, and sometimes. It's um, actually with words, sometimes it's body language, sometimes it's noises, sometimes it's in writing. And so when we talk about social communication, we're talking about that as a full, uh, like all of those pieces. So it's kind of all of the things within um, social communication. So when we're looking and talking about uh, what we might see as uh, challenges in this area, uh, we might notice that those who have autism, you know, might not pick up on nonverbal cues. And something really interesting about this is that uh, there's a statistic that says we get about 85% of our information, communication information, uh, from nonverbal cues, right? So if um, we're missing bits and pieces of that, then we're not really getting all of the information we need to understand where someone might be coming from. Um, you might notice yourself if, you know, maybe you're you're looking away while someone is talking to you or you're missing, um, you know, someone pointing in a particular direction. You're not really sure what they might be referring to you to, to while they're having a conversation with you. Right, we're missing that bit of information. So it's the same thing. It's just um, you know some people with autism might not notice uh, nonverbal cues such as facial expressions, body gesture, how we're holding ourselves. Um, you know, we talk about, uh, especially as an educator, we talk about reading the room, or if you're a presenter, um, you know, kind of, or we walk into a party or an event and we say, oh, what's the room kind of doing here? What's that vibe? Um, I would say that sometimes. Um, those with autism might miss some of that information. You know, on the converse, some would say they can be hyper aware of that information as well. And then that's kind of where we start getting subtly into the sensory sensitivities and things like that. So again, this is where some of this overlaps. Um, but as far as nonverbal information, it can be really hard to uh, kind of gather the information about how someone might be standing um, and also interpreting that. I often remember uh, if I would change my voice uh, maybe to I don't know. I, I wouldn't say necessarily reprimand, but let's say I was frustrated with something at home and I would change my voice instead of my usual, I would hope, relaxed and calm voice. I would change it to um, to calling one of my kids. If I called their name in a more stern manner, oftentimes it would be uh, misinterpreted as yelling at them. And I definitely was not yelling. I had just changed my tone of voice. So, so it's kind of missing that cue of how uh, to interpret maybe tone of voice. Um, volume level can be misinterpreted as well. Sometimes um, things like slang or non-literal language or if we're using figurative language, uh, metaphors, similes, all those things, uh, our folks can kind of miss some of that and not really understand uh, what you might be meaning by that. I, I think a common example people use is you're growing like a weed, right? And it's like, hey, wait, I'm, I'm not a plant. Like I'm not 
quite sure what you're talking about. <laughs> what do you mean by that? And it, it could be a really, you know, um, endearing gesture from, you know, a family member saying, hey, wow, you're growing so fast, right? Now that, if we said it that way, someone might understand that a little bit better. It's a lot clearer than using some other, um, you know, metaphor or example that isn't direct. So we want to be very direct. Um, inappropriate language use, sometimes you might notice Someone might use, someone um, with autism would use maybe the wrong phraseology or the wrong context or might be missing the context of the conversation, so, you, so might use inappropriate language. Uh, and also, because of some of the things we've already talked about, it can be really hard to navigate um, situational conversation. So again, we're talking about context, we're talking about reading, um, you know, uh, nonverbal cues, body language, and then sort of trying to figure out how to navigate the particular situation that's happening around them. Uh, another piece you might notice is volume and tone control, um, or you know, also prosody. So how far apart do they space their words when they're speaking? And um, again, that volume piece, uh, tone. Um, sometimes there's uh, less inflection in the voice, or maybe there's a lot of inflection in the voice. So again, there are no absolutes here. Uh, it's just something to notice that sometimes that conversational style might have a different canter to it. It might have a different volume to it, different tones. So again, something else to notice. And then, you know, when we're determining meaning from all of these things, as I've already said, this is part of what makes it really challenging. So then to have our traditional sort of rules of conversation, right, which is initiation. So I, I might say hello. And then the response, expected response would be hello back or, you know, how are you doing? And having this sort of back and forth dialogue and turn taking within that. Um, sometimes those rules are missed or misunderstood. So um, that could be something that one might notice. And then also topic maintenance. So sometimes uh, our folks can stay on topic, especially if it's their special interest, which we've talked about in a previous episode. Uh, and so that special interest can be something that someone can talk about a lot and spend a lot of time on, but maybe not know when to change that conversation. So when to move from uh, talking about their special interest and then moving on to maybe the other person's special interest or changing topics altogether. Sometimes insertion of uh, a special interest can be because there is some anxiety about what topic to, to stay on, right? When we're meeting new people or when we're maybe in an uncomfortable social situation, we might default to the special interest topic so that that way um, we at least know we have something to talk about and hopefully the other person's interested, but we might not read the cue, right? The visual cue or the body language that says, oh, I don't think the person's interested in what I'm saying anymore and we need to move on from this particular topic of conversation. So again, those are just um, a few things. And of course, because of some of these challenges, it, it can be really hard for uh, people to build friendships and make long-lasting connections and relationships. So it can be really challenging, again, because we're missing some social cues, the verbal and nonverbal cues. Maybe we're missing um, sort of the social structure of what's happening. So, you know, the way we might have a conversation with a very close 
friend group might be different than how we have a conversation with our family or very close uh, family or partner. Um, and then if we move into a work situation or a school situation, again, that might be a different type of conversation uh, that we might have. So all of those have their own social, you know, acceptabilities and social structure. There's different rules of engagement, different types of topics that we can talk about in each one of those different settings. So again, that can be, I mean, it's hard for most people to manage all of that all of the time, right? We all have sometimes trouble with that. Uh, but it can be particularly challenging if you're missing some social cues and you're missing, um, you know, what the context is of the conversation and then the understanding that you can't have the same conversation necessarily with uh, your family member than you would with a colleague at, in a workplace setting. So again, something to think about. And sometimes uh, we have trouble in initiating that conversation. So uh, whether we're talking about anxiety of being in the social situation or not understanding or knowing when to start uh, having that conversation, then Sometimes we might fall into a scripting, especially if someone has worked with um, a speech a therapist, which we will be talking with um, in a few episodes from now after we get through this series. But when um, when starting to build the social communication uh, skills, uh, sometimes in whether it's a social skills group or maybe it's one-on-one -on -one therapy or perhaps it could be called a lunch bunch, something like that, we might have in young children um, sort of practice this scripting and having a very uh, structured kind of conversation to help start building that skill in dialoguing. Uh, however, sometimes people can get caught in that conversation um, and kind of get stuck in there. Maybe it can become more natural as they get older um, or their skill has been built, but then sometimes when anxiety creeps in, we can default back to the script as well. So, you know, we kind of have to, you know, listen for that and learn for that. Um, and then, you know, sometimes, again, the person can lack a social filter. Um, you know, I think we all can all do that again. Uh, and we'll talk, you know, we talk about saying, oh, my, you know, I dropped my filter. My filter was down is something we might say. Um, but again, that can happen also with uh, our folks with autism. And, you know, they might... Um, not know when to place that filter up. So similar to having that conversation with, uh, you know, whether it's your family, your coworkers, or your friends, uh, the same is true even with the closest of people to you. You sometimes don't always say what's in your brain, right? You say some things and then sometimes you kind of try to say things in a nicer way <laughs> um, or you're trying to have your thoughts come out in a cohesive way, but, you know, you're trying to, choose the right words. So even as hard as it can be for most people to choose those words, it can be even more challenging when you're not sure, you know, what the right filter is that I should put up um, in having a conversation. And of course, as we've mentioned before, there's a lot of anxiety, right? So on top of it, we're adding the anxiety of, I'm not really sure how to behave in this particular situation. I'm not really sure what the right tone of voice I should have? How is my body language behaving? So I think sometimes what happens is as 
um, you know, a child might grow up and start recognizing and learning the tools of social communication. Um, they also can become very hyper aware. Uh, so self-awareness is good, as we've been talking about, but sometimes it can become a hyper awareness of how they're behaving and, you know, what they're saying and what do they look like and how are they presenting to other people because they know that sometimes they might miss those particular cues themselves. Um, so they're not really sure kind of which front to put out. And so this can lead into, of course, more anxiety. Uh, and it can also create um, a sense of kind of putting on this mask that we've talked about on and off with other guests that I've had on, um, where you're not feeling like you are your authentic self and that you have to kind of keep putting on these different personas depending on the situation that you're in. So that can also be very exhausting um, to maintain. So some things that we can do um, is, you know, speaking in a calm voice and sort of making sure that your tone um, is matching what you would like the tone of the conversation to be. Um, I would say avoiding sarcasm or any sort of figurative language. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that people talk a lot about is, um, you know, this eye contact thing. Uh, and Yes, it can be true that some people with autism um, have difficulty maintaining eye contact, um, and that can be for so many reasons. So it's not that necessarily they can't maintain eye contact. Sometimes it feels really pressured to do that. Sometimes it's very hard to do that. Or sometimes, you know, again, we have multiple things happening when we're having a conversation, right? So if we're trying to listen to someone, sometimes listening and looking at them can be a lot of information to process. So, you know, I, I've had, I've heard one student say, you know, if you want me to look at you, I can work on looking at you. Or if you want me to really listen to you, I can listen to you. So kind of like choose which one is more important in the moment. Um, so, you know, if we want the listening to, perhaps we need to relax that expectation of making eye contact all the time. There's also a cultural component to this. So um, sometimes some cultures, it is considered disrespectful to look at maybe a teacher or, you know, someone who is considered an authority, a, a manager, um, to actually look at them, you know, directly in the eye. So we need to be sensitive to that too and recognize that it might not be a sign of autism uh, or some sort of social communication challenge. It could just be a cultural piece where, you know, that is something that's been instilled to not look at people directly in the eye. Uh, so we need to kind of dig a little bit more deeply there. Hi, this is Elia. Just wanted to let you know that SSG also offers trainings, consultations, and parent coaching. Uh, check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Some other things to think about, um, perhaps avoiding open-ended questions, the, the W questions, as we'd say, which is who, what, why, um, and, and instead, maybe we provide choices. We provide, um, here are three different choices you could, you know, think of that you could pick. So pick from these few choices. Uh, I think when we leave a question too open, and I know I'm, I'm someone who, <laughs> who can go there too. Um, again, if I, I get particularly anxious um, during a conversation, if someone asks me, 
um, you know, well, you know, why did you think that? Or, um, you know, well, you know, what are you going to do for that with that particular <laughs> with that particular problem? I, you know, maybe if I'm in an anxious place, my initial reaction is going to be to pause. And maybe I have that little bit of feeling of freezing because I'm not really sure how to respond. And maybe I don't really know the answer to that question. Uh, so it's going to take some time. But if if maybe someone's asking me very, you know, to choose from three specific things, are you possibly feeling sad or are you possibly feeling anxious or are you unsure? Then maybe I can start to tease out a little bit more um, of what I might be feeling and then I can maybe start to engage in a little bit more of a dialogue instead of freezing. And then, you know, maybe it's like, well, it's not quite, you know, unsure of what to say. It's really more this. And then I can kind of maybe uh, add more to my uh, dialogue because now I have more language and someone's allowing me to choose from a set of, you know, a set of feelings in that case that I can maybe use um, or I can validate or say, no, that's not correct. What I'm actually feeling is this. But now I'm, I got a little bit more sense of what they're looking for. And I also was given some choices that can help feed my brain so that I can take that information in and then be able to assess whether that makes sense for me or not. Or maybe we choose from another set. Um, and so if none of those seem right, then someone can offer me a new set. Um, so that would be how we could, you know, maybe use that. And then allowing extra time for processing. And I think we do this uh, as a culture in general, is we want people to answer us right away uh, and, you know, know what they're thinking and feeling and know what their response is um, right away. And, and sometimes we need to allow for a pause and kind of a step back and give people some space to answer. So I would say this is probably true for, uh, for everyone and for all types of conversation. And unless crisis, of course, then you have to kind of act quickly. But um, I would say in general, taking a pause and stepping back and allowing people to process the information that they're taking in and then be able to respond when they're ready or give a time when, you know, you could say, hey, when you don't have to answer me now, uh, but when do you think would be a good time? How much time can I let you, you know, do you need to think about this so that then you can get back to me. So that's another way to kind of work through that. So again, just giving people um, a pause and uh, just some time to process what, they're, what they've heard and then also be able to process uh, what a response would be that they feel comfortable with. So some more strategies to think about, and I've kind of you know, pulled some of this in already, being direct and logical um, and providing a lot of feedback. So if you've, let's say in that last example, you've given three sets of emotions uh, to choose from uh, and or states of being, I would say, and, you know, none of them feel right, um, then you could say, hey, it looks like maybe none of those seem to work. Um, do you want me to give you another set of choices? So that can be another thing. Or do you need help figuring out how you might be feeling? Um, so again, and also being um, someone who's providing a lot of feedback, not just um, constructive feedback, but also 
you know, positive reinforcement. So when something's happening that's that's going well, definitely let someone know. And I, I think a lot of this is pretty intuitive for everyone. So I don't think this is, you know, unique to uh, the autistic population. I think this is universal in having um, conversations and also being direct and logical in your uh you know, in your communication style. So, I mean, I think probably through the work that I've done, I've become, you know, very uh, agile, <laughs> I would say, at trying to give very explicit, direct, and logical um, directions and information um, and being able to explain things stepwise. So one example is I had uh, a uh, someone working for me who was a great speaker and he would come to a lot of different um, presentations, also a really good facilitator. But whenever I would, you know, have um, have them come speak at a particular event, I would give them a very specific set of directions, where they're going to go, um, the address, maybe what the GPS address might look like, what the building looks like. I mean, I would say thank goodness for Google Maps because you can actually take pictures of things. You can drop yourself right onto the street of where a particular house or building or anything, <laughs> any venue, um, and you can drop yourself right in front of it and see what it's going to look like before you go. Um, so that is a tool that I use often and I give very specific, clear written directions um, in that case. But I think it's also true um, in verbal communication to be very direct, specific, logical, uh, and then also checking for feedback on that. Like, so am I being specific enough? Do you need more information? Um, what else do you need to help understand what I'm trying to say? And the converse is true on the receiving end. If you need more information, I think being able to ask for that uh, is great. I think uh, in working with many adults, uh, I've heard often to please, please be um, transparent and be clear and please let me know if I've misstepped, if I'm doing something that's off-putting because I want to learn and I need to better understand it. And I don't know unless someone tells me. And I think, again, societally, we we want to make sure we don't hurt people's feelings and we feel badly telling them that, hey, that's like not flying with this conversation. But I think it's really important that we provide really clear, direct feedback that is transparent, but of course done in a very diplomatic and not condescending type of way. I think it's important. Uh, and as we talked about in the past, building rapport is huge, building trust is huge. And so once you have that, you can give really clear, direct feedback uh, and, you know, it can be used and processed and used to learn from and then being able to better understand um, possibly the same situation in the future. So um, another thing to talk about is uh, explaining that there are unwritten rules. And so in my previous example, talking about, you know, the different types of groups that we might be in. So the family group, friend group, school group, you know, employer group, um, all of those have different unwritten rules. Uh, so like, where do you sit when it's lunchtime um, when you're at work? Or what are the rules around taking a break? Um, what are the rules when you're in a college classroom versus a high school classroom about stepping out of the classroom for something? Um, you know, each, not only 
is each one specific, but it can be specific from employer to employer, from school to school, from you know, professor to professor. So again, it's really learning what is it for that particular person um, that you're interacting with. But I think just the premise of knowing that there are unwritten rules in every social situation that you're going to be in, um, and then seeking to understand them. And I would say this is on both sides, um, explaining what the unwritten rules might be, so kind of un uncovering those. Uh, and then not just that, but also saying that, hey, you know, I, I realize, oh, wow, I'm operating myself under the premise of this unwritten rule. Is it something I can change? Do I have to stick with that? Um, or is it something we kind of have to stick to? So like, for example, if we were at a play at, in a theater, uh, an unwritten rule is you don't talk during a play or during a movie. Um, but again, that can be play-specific, that can be location-specific. In some cases, maybe it might be okay to talk during a movie or um, a show. But in general, I think we've all agreed that those are times when we don't do that. Now, um, that would be a conversation one would have before you go to the show or to the movie that there's a rule that we can't talk during the, the play so that we don't disturb other people around us. The why is super important. So we always need to give the why. And we've talked about that before, too, in other conversations. Uh, so that way, it's not just like a hard no, that there is a reason behind the no. There is a why behind it. And, you know, uh, the other thing is to allow for quirks in conversational style. Right. Like everybody has their own way of having conversations. Everybody has their own, you know, flair, I would say. So we need to allow for everyone to be individual. We don't want people to be robots. Um, we don't want everyone to sound like they're having the same conversations. Um, because that's just not as interesting, right? So we want to make sure that people are able to express who they are, use their own dialogue style, uh, but still, you know, sort of making sure it's within the context of the conversation, the right context of the people around them, and so on. Um, and then, you know, the other thing to think about is uh, how things play out whether it's a school setting, a work setting, a personal setting, right? What do the rules of conversation look like in that? So, um, you know, let's say you're in a college class and you miss a class, right? So what does that look like? And what do I do? A lot of folks can get caught up in anxiety of not knowing how to then, you know, advocate for their needs of having missed class and also I, there might be a perception that the professor might get upset with them because they missed class. So maybe a little bit of coaching around, you know what, why don't you just try emailing your professor and just letting them know that you missed class and that you apologized and is there anything that you need to do to catch up? Um, and then kind of walking them through that type of an email as opposed to, let's say, you missed hanging out with your friend and you didn't show up. Um, that would be a different type of conversation, right? And maybe we could do that during text. Maybe it's better by phone. Um, and so then understanding what the parameters are. And, and I'm sure some of that changes depending on how old you are and what your friend and peer group is like. So um, I think all of those different situations and dynamics have their own rules, right? And it's, I mean, I'm still learning sometimes what the appropriate way is to text versus 
being on Facebook and, you know, Instagram and all of those have their own sort of um, context of how we communicate on all of the different social medias that exist, as well as how we email, as well as how we text. So and depends on who we're doing, you know, who we're communicating with. So um, we need to think about all of those things. So it is a lot. And we don't realize that for most of us, we just sort of default uh, to what we do and we don't realize how much we're actually processing that. Sometimes maybe, and I know I'm guilty of that, um, you know, we hit that send button a little too quickly and maybe we need to review. And so that might be true um, for our folks here too. Um, but again, just being mindful that all of those different scenarios have a different uh, context and a different way of communicating. Um, and maybe, you know, if you're working with a student or a client, you know, maybe they have different types of um ways of communicating that have their own set of rules that we might not be aware of. So I know there's Reddit that has a different set of rules. A lot of people who game are on Discord and that has a different set of rules. Maybe the video game that you might be playing have has its own set of rules. <laughs> um, and again, from hobby to hobby, from interest to interest, right, each one has its own set of uh, rules. So um, again, we need to be mindful of all of that and, and kind of help um, folks work through those and play with those. So I think in doing this, what we do is we help to build um, self-awareness, which again then can feed self-advocacy. And I really think that, um, right, as we build that self-awareness, self-advocacy can come um, more clearly. And so, you know, you might have uh, now a young adult who can then say, um, you know, I'm not really sure I totally understood what you said, uh, what you meant when you said X, whatever that might be. And then that is showing self-awareness that I didn't understand that. And then that gives the other person the opportunity to be able to explain themselves maybe in a different way or maybe asking is there another way that you can explain that concept to me? Because the way you did it doesn't really make sense to me, but maybe I can better understand it if you phrase it in a different way or use a different example. Um, so again, as we build this skill of self-awareness, right, we can build that skill of self-advocacy. And self-advocacy is really a lot about communication. It's knowing how to speak up for what you need um, and, you know, what, what, is helpful for you and then being able to say it in a way where it can be well received so that you actually get what you need. Uh, so, you know, it can, it can be super critical to build these communication skills. And again, this doesn't necessarily just have to be with words, right? It can be in written format. It can be maybe it's ex expressing yourself in pictures or using other types of technology to be able to communicate. So um, all things that we can think about and um, again, really more in this quest of being able to be heard, uh, be self-aware, and be able to advocate for oneself. So uh, I hope you found this helpful. Let me know if, um, if you have any other tools or strategies that you use or that have been helpful for students or clients. Um, I'm, I'm interested in always learning more about um, what helps and what works. And again, building that toolbox for people. And, uh, you know, give me your feedback and let me know what you think. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this episode and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. 
This is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching, and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.